The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. And uh, it is always a pleasure and a delight to be asked, and to be asked for next year even, where I've been asked to speak on Acts 8 and the Ethiopian eunuch. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Our first lesson tonight is from the book of the prophet Zechariah, as you would expect, chapter 4. And we shall read verses 1 to 7. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. And then from the Gospel according to John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 20. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned to their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Thanks be to God for these readings from his own holy word. Who can forget the photographs of the European cities the day after Hitler's forces invaded their country and community? French citizens, Dutch citizens, Poles, they appear horrified and stunned in equal measure. They know they are going to be subject to an arbitrary brutality already notorious wherever the Nazi boot has alighted. Their splendid architecture is going to be reduced to rubble. Their institutions, the outcome of decades, if not centuries of publicly owned wisdom, will be mocked and rendered inoperative. Families are going to be disrupted. Many people will disappear without trace. Places of worship 
like this will be violated. The Nazis, it must be remembered, housed livestock in synagogues. Anyone who resists will be shot on sight. Anyone who conspires with others to sabotage will be tortured. Invasion writes shock, fear, and fury on the faces of its victims. Can anything be worse? Yes, there is something worse. Deportation. Deportation is worse than mere invasion. For those deported, the immediate future is forced labor, degradation, and finally, death. In 586 BCE, the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem and overran the people who looked upon Hier Shalem as the city of God's shalom, salvation. Deportation followed immediately. In exile, the departed Jewish people struggled for 70 years to preserve their identity and their hope. Their hope was fired afresh in 522 BCE when widespread revolt convulsed the Persian states. Surely these revolts heralded the downfall of the Gentile oppressor. Surely they anticipated the long-awaited day of the Lord. Haggai and Zechariah were convinced that the messianic king was in their midst. God would show his hand, end the rule of the enemy, vindicate his people, and inaugurate the messianic kingdom. When the Lord returned to reign in Zion, he would find his kingly throne awaiting him, for only then could he execute his sovereign purposes throughout the world. If the Lord were to find his kingly throne awaiting him, then the temple would have to be rebuilt. Now, the temple was the central place of worship, but it wasn't central in that it was larger or grander than other places of worship. The temple was the foundation of Israel's worship in that it was qualitatively different from all others, qualitatively different, for instance, from the synagogues that would soon proliferate. The synagogue was the locus of preaching and teaching and praying, the locus of probing Torah and applying it, the locus of religious discussion and community cohesion. The temple, on the other hand, was the venue of sacrifice. The temple was the only place on earth where God had pledged to meet his people for sure. Now, everybody knew that God in his glorious freedom could encounter anyone at all, whenever, wherever, however it pleased God. At the same time, everybody knew that God had pledged himself to meet his people for sure in the temple. In fact, the Israelite people envisioned God in the temple with his head in the heavens and his feet on the earth. Specifically, they envisioned God sitting on the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat was the gold lid covering the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant contained, among other things, the tablets on which the finger of God had inscribed the Decalogue. God sat. Royal rulers always sat to teach and exercise their authority. God sat on the mercy seat. Please note that God rules from the mercy seat, rules in mercy. God sat on the mercy seat even as he infinitely transcended the temple while at the same time the earth was his footstool. 
It was in the temple that God could be accessed for sure, and the God whom his people accessed there ruled in mercy. In other words, in the temple, unholy sinners could approach even an encounter the Holy One himself and survive. To say they could approach him, however, isn't to say that they could nonchalantly saunter up to him or presumptuously sashay over to him or carelessly contact him as thoughtlessly as they might brush up against anybody else on a crowded Jerusalem street. They were always aware that the chief exercise of worship was sacrifice, sacrifice offered to God. Sacrifice was the God-appointed means whereby defiled people, guilty people, excuseless people could come before God and live, survive, to plead his mercy. Sacrifice, however, wasn't merely God-appointed. It was also God-provided. Hadn't the psalmist said that the cattle on a thousand hills were God's? Sacrifice was the God-appointed, God-provided means whereby sin was atoned for and sinners were reconciled and defiled people were cleansed and those deserving death could live before God and with him. The temple would have to be rebuilt. For only then would sacrifice be offered once again and the people revivified. And all of this as God assumed his throne in Zion and manifested his reign. And yet such a reign, such an operative sovereignty, what would its nature be? Would it simply be Yahweh out muscling Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon the way the Allied air forces outmuscled the Luftwaffe when German cities were devastated more thoroughly than British cities had been devastated earlier? Now I trust that nobody tonight thinks that the Allied outbombing of the Luftwaffe was a sign of the kingdom of God. If Yahweh merely outmuscled Nebuchadnezzar, then Yahweh's righteousness and holiness still hadn't appeared. For this reason, a vision and a word were vouchsafed to Zechariah. The vision a lampstand with gold, with seven lamps on it, together with two olive trees. Now seven, all of you know, is the biblical symbol for wholeness or completeness. The lampstand with seven lamps burning, 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 represents God's effectual presence, illuminating, cheering, igniting. God's effectual presence throughout the whole world, seven lamps. The two olive trees guarantee oil enough to ensure the effectual presence of him whose fire and light never falter or flicker or fizzle out. So much for the vision. What about the word? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, to be sure, the temple, the stone edifice, would be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Yet Zechariah and his people were promised more than they knew because centuries later, Israel's greater son was to declare, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. In his pronouncement, Jesus is plainly moving back and forth between temple as the stone edifice where the Holy One is high and lifted up 
touches the earth for sure and where penitent people may access him for sure, Jesus is moving back and forth between that temple and the temple which is his body, his flesh. He and he alone is the one in whom God incarnates himself. He is the one, Jesus of Nazareth, in whom God touches the earth. He is the one whose self-sacrifices allows, even invites, sinners access to the Father. Just as plainly, we must be sure to note, the church building in which you and I worship Sunday by Sunday is not the successor to the Jerusalem temple. We are wrong, utterly wrong, to say to a youngster, now don't run in the church, don't run in the church, because the house, the church is the house of God. The church building, even the site of worship right here, is nothing of the sort. God does not house himself here. God does not house himself in anybody's church building. God houses himself in the flesh of Jesus of Nazareth and houses himself there only. The word became flesh and housed itself among us, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is God's holy temple in that Jesus is the venue of atoning sacrifice. <clears throat> Not only is he the venue of atoning sacrifice, he is the sacrifice itself and the priest who offers the sacrifice. Jesus is priest, sacrifice, and venue of sacrifice all at once. He alone is the sacrifice offered up on the altar of his own flesh. Believing as we do that our Lord's sacrifice is sufficient and efficient, complete and perfect, neither requiring nor permitting repetition, we speak of a communion table in our church buildings, but we do not speak of an altar. Jesus Christ is the altar on which there is offered up to the Father the sacrifice sealing the atonement. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. My spirit? According to the apostles, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the power the crucified one bears and bestows. Everywhere in the Newer Testament, Jesus Christ bears the Spirit and bestows the Spirit and pours forth the Spirit in the wake of his cross and his resurrection. There's nothing wrong with speaking of power. Dunamis, the Greek word from which we get dynamite, Dunamis is a perfectly good, strong, biblical word. And there's nothing wrong with speaking of power as long as we understand power to be the power of the crucified. There's nothing wrong with might, even almightiness, as long as we understand it to be the might of the crucified. But if we ever start to think of power as sheer force, mere force, you know, Muhammad Ali raised to the nth degree, if we think of power unmodified, power unqualified, power unchecked, we aren't talking about God at all. We are talking about Satan. My students have enormous difficulty grasping this point. 
in introductory theology classes, we talk about God's sovereignty, God's power, God's almightiness. Some students, the Calvinists especially, I always feel sorry for them because I'm a Calvin scholar myself. Some students, the Calvinists especially, are eager to speak of the sovereignty of God. I ask them, in the 2,000 pages of Calvin's final edition of the Institutes, how many times does Calvin speak of the sovereignty of God? How many times does God, Calvin use the expression, the sovereignty of God? Well, the students by this time know it's a trap, so there's silence in the classroom. So I tell them, none. Nowhere in his institutes does Calvin ever use the expression, the sovereignty of God. But Professor Shepherd, don't you believe in the sovereignty of God? Well, of course I do. If God isn't sovereign, he isn't God. The crucial question, however, is what do we mean by sovereignty? What do we mean by power? What do we mean by power? A bold student, albeit benighted, says, power is the capacity to do what you want, anything that you want. Power is the capacity to implement anything you have in mind. What the student means, of course, is that power is the capacity to wrench. Power is the capacity to coerce. Power is unqualified force raised indefinitely. The student's wrong. Power is never unqualified force. Power, my friends, power is the capacity to achieve purpose. Remember that. Power is the capacity to achieve purpose. What is God's purpose? It's a people who love him and obey him and serve him. How does God achieve this purpose? Through the cross. God exercises power, which is to say God achieves his purpose when the Son of God dies helpless at the city garbage dump, strung up between two criminals, pinned in disgrace to a piece of wood used in that era to execute three kinds of malefactors, revolutionaries, military deserters, rapists. I'll leave it to you to, uh, to uh, think about with whom Jesus was identified. In the economy of God, God achieves his purpose when he, in the person of his son, is so helpless that he can't even wriggle. I tell my startled students that power doesn't mean God can do anything at all. And even if it did mean this, we'd be no further ahead because we don't know. You don't know, let me tell you right now, what God can do. We haven't a clue as to what God can do or what God can't do. We haven't a clue. We know only what God has done. What has he done? In his son, he has given himself up to suffering, abuse, degradation, and that death which is alienation from the Father. Why have you forsaken me? This is what God has done. We know God only as by grace we are made the beneficiaries of what God has done on our behalf for our sakes. We have no warrant at all for speaking of who God is apart from 
what God has done. Then what about God's power? God's power is the power of the cross. Since God is love, God's characteristic work is to act in love. Since God is almighty, his act of love can't be defeated, which is to say God can't be defeated in reconciling a wayward creation to himself. At the cross, God does his most characteristic work and his most mighty work. God does his most characteristic work, love, and his most mighty work, reconciliation, when, from a human perspective, he appears helpless. I didn't say ineffective. I did not say ineffective. The cross, my friends, is anything but ineffective. When the immature Christians in Corinth, grossly immature, wanted a display of worldly power and wisdom in Christian dress, Paul reminded them that the cross, and only the cross, is both the power of God and the wisdom of God. Think about it for a minute. Through the cross, God bore our sin and bore it away, didn't he? Through the preaching of the cross, God has brought you and me to faith, hasn't he? Through the crucified one rendered alive, but still bearing the wounds of the cross, the Spirit is now poured out upon us, isn't he? Never confuse seeming human helplessness with divine uselessness. Never make that confusion. My students, however, never get this point the first time around. Upset now, they shout at me, the bolder ones, you're forgetting something, shepherd. You're forgetting that while Christ was certainly crucified, once Sunday followed Friday and he was raised above the cross. He was raised beyond the cross. He put it behind him. Whereupon I ask my students, <clears throat> was Christ raised whole or was Christ raised wounded? Was he raised beyond being crucified or was he raised as crucified? Was he raised healed or was he raised with his rent flesh gaping? In a word, was he raised beyond being crucified or was he raised as crucified? Well, according to the apostles, our Lord was raised as crucified. He wasn't raised beyond it. On Easter morning, the risen Lord invites skeptical disciples to confirm the wounds of the cross. His wounds are that by which they recognize him. When Saul, soon to be Paul, is persecuting Christians without let-up, the risen Christ comes upon him and speaks to him. What does the risen one say? In view of the fact that Paul's been abusing Christians, we expect the risen Lord to say, why are you hurting my people? But in truth, he says, why are you hurting me? In other words, the risen one suffers in the suffering of his people, which is to say the risen one suffers still. In the book of Revelation, John the seer looks around for someone who is worthy to open the sealed scroll and render God's redemption operative. He looks for the lion of the tribe of Judah because 
the line of the tribe of Judah surely is someone who can wrench things right. When John is finally able to see through his tear-blurred eyes, he sees not the line of the tribe of Judah, but a lamb, specifically a lamb hemorrhaging, a lamb hemorrhaging still. The power of God isn't the capacity to wrench or coerce. Zechariah repudiates all such notions of power. The might of God isn't the almightiness of sheer might, unqualified might. Zechariah repudiates all such notions of might. What's more, no less a figure than John Calvin insisted that a God who is sheer power, nothing but power, would be a God we could never worship and a God we could never love. The power of God is the power of the spirit, and the spirit is the unique efficacy of the crucified. God's almightiness is the limitless efficacy of the cross. If you're going to take one line home with you tonight, take that one. God's almightiness is the limitless efficacy of the cross. The point we've been making tirelessly tonight concerning the efficacy of God's Holy Spirit in achieving God's purpose versus the purpose of uh, the power of brute force to achieve nothing but carnage. This point nobody grasped more profoundly than Martin Luther. At the Heidelberg Disputation, the year 1518, Luther, recognizing his opponent's reliance on everything except the cross, Luther declared, apart from Jesus Christ, the crucified God is indistinguishable from the devil. Apart from Jesus Christ, the crucified, God is indistinguishable from the devil. Approaching the same matter from a different angle, Luther subsequently announced that he would always reject the Theologia Gloriae, a theology of glory, in favor of a Theologia Crucis, a theology of the cross. For the rest of his life, Luther held up this distinction. Luther insisted that a church that disdains the theology of the cross, preferring to luxuriate in a theology of glory, is a church that boasts such a church struts, it swaggers, it brags. It brags about itself, its size, its political clout, its budget, its place in the community, its material resources, its higher profile members. A church luxuriating in a theology of glory, said Luther, exalts itself instead of its Lord. It preens itself instead of adoring him. It's preoccupied with self-aggrandizement instead of with its mission. It craves social acceptance rather than the salvation of the lost. It adulterates the gospel through adding what's intellectually fashionable instead of bringing the gospel and its purity and truth to bear on what's intellectually current, if not intellectually questionable. A church bent on a theology of glory, it would appear, is laughable. Would that it were merely laughable, because in truth, a church bent on a theology of glory is lethal. Lethal? Of course. 
Such a church has confused the triumph of Jesus Christ, which is to say the spirit or the power of the crucified with the triumphalism of the institution. A triumphalistic institution can't endure seeming failure, and therefore it has to ensure success or what it considers to be success. In a word, such a church, triumphalistic and lethal, insists on converting people. Now, it is never the church's business to convert. Never. Everywhere in the book of Acts and elsewhere, of course, it is the Holy Spirit's business to convert. It is the church's business to bear witness or to evangelize. Evangelism is the church's responsibility. Conversion is the spirit's responsibility. A theology of glory, however, finds the church impatient with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit appears not to act quickly enough, dramatically enough, successfully enough. Therefore, the church thinks it can do better than the Spirit what God has already declared to be his sole responsibility. A church that confuses evangelism and conversion. A church that usurps God's prerogative in the salvation of the world does two things. In the first place, such a church announces to the world that it doesn't believe in God. Well, plainly, it doesn't believe in God because it's advertised its non-confidence in God to do what God has declared he alone can do, namely, make alive those currently dead in trespasses and sins, quicken faith in people who are now spiritually inert. Such a church, no longer content with its commission to evangelize and attest, elbows God aside in order to take over his role, thinking it can do better than he what he has already declared only he can do. Any church bent on conversion announces its unbelief. In the name of God, it announces that it doesn't believe in God because it doesn't trust God the Spirit of God. In the second place, a triumphalistic church confusing the triumph of the crucified with institutional triumphalism, a triumphalistic church persecutes. It will always persecute. A church bent on converting people quickly finds that most people resist conversion. Their resistance spells failure, supposedly, for the church. Having already disdained the failure of a crucified Lord, the church insists that people must become converted. Such insistence swells into coercion as all kinds of pressure are mobilized. Psychological pressure, social pressure, political pressure, financial pressure, not to mention that harder to define, much more subtle oppression of which the Older Testament speaks, oppression that is much less visible but no less distressing. Genuine Christians always exist as a minority. They exist as a minority even in Christendom. And persecution of them at the hands of the church has always occurred. Think. Just think of evangelicals in the United Church of Canada for the last 20 or 25 years. 
Never doubt that the United Church was resolute in its efforts to convert people, especially convert the clergy to its ideology. And never forget the oppression the United Church visited on those clergy who resisted such conversion. And if you doubt it, I'm willing to talk to you. Think of Protestants in the province of Quebec a few years ago. Think of the children of my Roman Catholic friends, children who were enrolled in Christian Reformed elementary schools and who were savaged. Anybody who reads church history reads two stories. One story is the story of the spirit-invigorated surge of the gospel as the gospel triumphs over unbelief. The other story is the story of the triumphalism of the church. This latter story is a sad story, a shameful story, because this latter story always details persecution. If you doubt what I say, all you need to do is speak to a Jewish neighbor. The saddest chapter in the church's history has been the church chapter concerning the church's relation to the synagogue. Jewish people have been the target of the church's persecution for centuries. Let us never forget that until 1948, when tensions mounted in the Middle East with the arrival of the State of Israel, until 1948, Jewish people had always received better treatment historically at the hands of Islamic people than they had received at the hands of the church. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Let's think next about discipleship. If anyone would cut him after me, let him deny himself, herself, take up his cross and follow me. We've read our Lord's words since infancy, and we've read them so often, we now read right past them. We've heard them so often, they no longer register. Yet it remains true, discipleship is cruciform. There's no such thing as cross-less proximity to Jesus Christ. To be intimately related to him is to be appointed to cross-bearing. Not so long ago, I was asked to preach at the worship service of a parachurch organization. I gladly agreed to do so. I'm always glad to preach, even though I knew a price, a small price, as it were, had to be paid. Now, here's the small price. We had to sing sub-gospel choruses for 20 or 25 minutes before the service, something we never have to do with Brother Roger here, of course. We began singing that wretched ditty. He bears my shame, my guilt, my cross. I elbowed the woman beside me so hard she doubled over. No, he doesn't, I expostulated. Christ doesn't bear my cross. He bears his own cross, and he appoints me to mine. Whereupon she looked at me as if I were deranged, and she gasped, Don't sweat the small stuff. But it isn't small stuff. If it were small stuff, the North American prosperity gospel would be sound. But we're rightly turned off by the prosperity gospel, aren't we? We know it panders to material acquisitiveness and social superiority. We recognize it to be a hideous caricature of Christian discipleship. We must be sure to understand that we are never, simply never, asked to carry Christ's cross 
No one of us has been appointed to be the Savior of the world. We have been asked to carry our own cross. We can't bear his. And just as surely, he won't bear ours. Our Lord bears his own cross, and he appoints you and me to ours. How did the North American prosperity gospel ever come about? It came about when its proponents assumed that Jesus Christ had been raised post-crucified instead of raised as crucified. When it was assumed that Jesus was raised scarless instead of raised marked by his wounds. When it was assumed that Jesus had a bad day once. It happened to be a Friday, but never mind, never mind. He got over it and he's never looked back. By definition, Christians are those who have been raised with Christ. If we think that our Lord in his resurrection has left his cross behind, we're going to assume that we have left ours behind too. But if we understand that he has been raised as crucified, then to be his disciple means we've been appointed to cross-bearing and therefore sacrificial self-renunciation will always pertain to the definition of discipleship. Lastly, in conformity with the cruciform nature of discipleship, the Christian knows she will always incur the hostility of the world. The servant isn't above her master. If he incurred the world's hostility, she will too. Think for a minute about the word world. In the writings of Paul, world, cosmos, means the entire created universe, planets, stars, galaxies, so on. In John, however, the word world, cosmos, same word, has a very different meaning. In John, cosmos means the sum total of defined humankind tacitly organized in its opposition to God and gospel. The world, in John, is the sum total of defiant humankind tacitly organized in its opposition to God and the gospel. It is world in this latter sense that concerns us now. Tacitly organized in its opposition? Never forget that on the day Jesus was condemned, Luke tells us, Herod and Pilate, two fellows who had never had any use for each other, finally became friends. The Christian incurs the world's hostility, necessarily incurs the world's hostility, added Luther. Now, don't assume that tonight's sermon is going to end on a downer. I don't want anybody to go home depressed. Because the God who operates not by coercion or compulsion, but rather by his mysterious spirit, this God supplies his people with invisible resources. <clears throat> as often as we incur the world's hostility, we find faith strengthened. Recall the principal character in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. The man's detractors kept pouring water on the flame of faith in order to extinguish it, while unbeknown to them, out of their sight, Oil was always being poured on the flame of faith to keep it burning ever brighter. For this reason, the Christian can rely on the peace that God alone supplies, the peace that passes all understanding just because it isn't humanly engendered, just because it's a peace the world neither gives nor takes away, 
just as the joy of the Lord is a joy the world neither gives nor takes away. We must always be spirit-attuned to recognize the strengthening God lends his people by means of their fellow believers. Isn't that one reason why we're here together tonight? Over and over in the book of Acts, Luke tells us of the apostles venturing throughout Asia Minor, strengthening the churches, Acts 15, strengthening all the disciples, Acts 18. Most tellingly, Luke speaks of Paul and his colleagues strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14. If I have made one point consistently tonight, it is this. Zacharias, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. It doesn't boil down to feebleness or ineffectiveness or weakness or uselessness. On the contrary, God's spirit is the guarantee of genuine power. In other words, God's spirit is the guarantee of God's purpose achieved. The Apostle Paul always knew this. He had in his bloodstream what Zechariah, his foreparent in faith, had written 500 years earlier. For this reason, Paul prays for the Christians in Colossae, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Amen. Distinguish between the uh, theology of glory and the theology of suffering, that of power and of weakness. How do we distinguish between suffering and weakness and effective suffering? Simple weakness, simple suffering. Is there an effect? How do we distinguish that? Is the church being effective when it's just suffering and? Suffering of itself, of course, is uh, hideous, and God's face is set against it. That's why our Lord's ministry involves so much the alleviation of suffering. One reason that we're, uh, I think, misled here is the New Testament uses two different words. It uses a word for suffering, which refers to the fact that I'm 68 years old and my uh, wonky knees are starting to ache and so on, you know, and uh, we're all finite creatures, and... Um, and we're in our finitude, bodies break down and wear out, and we're subject to disease and so on. It uses a word for that. Then it uses another word for the suffering which is brought on people by their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And that's the word thlipsis. Thlipsis refers as the old English word is tribulation, but today people don't know what tribulation means. And... Um, it is the tribulation of the saints which is the cutting edge from a human perspective of the gospel's surge ahead throughout the world. But the very fact that uh, um, I have measles and you have the flu of itself isn't something we're to glory in. It is something which God has set his face against because in heaven there will be no sickness or sorrowing or suffering of that sort. While we on earth, however, that particular suffering which is visited on Christians because of their allegiance to the gospel, 
they can relieve themselves of it only by abandoning the gospel, committing apostasy. Now, when we're faced with the everyday suffering born of our finitude, the gospel urges upon the church the ministry of healing. Healing has always been a ministry of the church. But when we're dealing with that suffering, which is the result of our discipleship, our cross-bearing, the gospel always uses a different word, not healing. It's hupomene, steadfastness. Steadfastness. Now, the suffering, which is the lot of our fallen finitude, we ought to relieve in any way we can. But the suffering that comes upon me through my allegiance to Jesus Christ and my identification with him is a suffering that I can shed only by abandoning him. And I think that's the major difference. I think that we're, we're uh, confused at this point very often in the church because we have lost the, tra the more accurate translation of several different Greek words. There's a big difference between suffering, everyday suffering, and tribulation as there's a big difference between healing and steadfastness. And on the same subject of suffering for the gospel, um, we read throughout the world of our brothers and sisters who suffer tremendously, um, even unto death, for the gospel. Here in the West, we are surrounded by so much comfort and materialism. What, in your understanding, does suffering for the gospel mean in our world? I think what suffering for the gospel means in our world varies from place to place and person to person and situation to situation. I don't think everybody is called to suffer in equal measure. Some people, I think, un unquestionably, their vocation in the gospel entails greater suffering for some than it does to others. We see this in uh, you know, we, as far as we know, Peter and Paul uh, died hideously in Nero's persecution, A.D. 65. The legend or the, is that Peter was even crucified upside down, whereas the apostle John dies an old man. Now, he's exiled on the island of Patmos, but he dies of natural causes. Now, I think that uh, our discipleship will entail different time, kinds of suffering for all of us. But at the same time, I think there was, uh, I, I, the suffering that's brought upon Christians today, for example, in Canada, isn't uh, dramatic or startling for the most part. You're not going to be disemboweled tonight upon leaving the church. You likely won't even lose your job for being known as a Christian. But you might lose it for being a Christian if your conviction voiced puts you on the wrong side of company policy or fudging books or something like that. A friend of mine, Bob Giuliano, a little older than I am, had to see my... My cousin's a urologist in uh, London, Ontario. And Bob, a retired minister, told me that at his age, his bladder was full of holes. So he had to go and see my cousin, Waterworks. And then Bob told me that, he said, I have a little uh, word for you, Victor. He said, I was talking to your cousin, uh, who was the son of my dad's brother. And he said, Victor, this is what your cousin said. Eric said, my father, that's my uncle, my father always knew what the gospel was, did his best to uphold it and live it. 
But my Uncle Jack, that's my dad, he says, my Uncle Jack knew what the gospel was, did his best to uphold and live it, always knew what price doing that entailed and never, ever hesitated to pay that price. And Bob said to me, I just wanted to pass this on to you. Now, my mother has told me many such stories uh, about this. My father worked for one of the major financial institutions in Canada, and he let it be known there were steps he would not take and places he would not go and so on, and that's fine. And while at one time he was moving ahead, all of a sudden he got a desk at the back of the room, and there he eddied around until a heart attack took him off at age 59. Time off for good behavior. When we lived in um, Edmonton, I was born in Edmonton, my dad was at church morning and evening, and he went every Sunday afternoon to the Fort Saskatchewan Penitentiary to play the piano for a service of worship and to preach. We had no car. Someone had to drive him there, someone else who was going to the service. But my dad went every single Sunday afternoon for 11 years. He went there because his own father had gone from Clinton, Ontario, throughout the West, all the way down to California, where he got a job working for Union Pacific Railroad. You know those railroad men? Drunk and disorderly, imprisoned repeatedly in the United States and Canada, but who came to sobriety and faith through the ministry of the gospel. And my father felt that because of what the, the gospel and the church, the church had done for his dad. He, one avenue of my father's gospel ministry as a layman was prisons. Well, one day when I was about 15, I said to my dad, you did this every single Sunday for 11 years. Did you ever see anything come of it? I thought my question was sensible. My father looked at me as if I had three heads, and he said, I never did it for a minute because I expected to see anything come of it. I did it because I knew it was right. But as a matter of fact, he and my mom were riding a streetcar one day in Edmonton, and a man got on the streetcar, and he came down, and he leaned over and he talked to my dad. They obviously knew each other and went on to the back of the streetcar. My mother said, who's he? Oh, my father said, he's one of the men from the penitentiary who came to faith through my ministry there. Now, you find someone in church life today who's going to make that kind of sacrifice and that kind of commitment and give up what to do it. We moved to Winnipeg in 1949. And Stony Mountain Penitentiary is a long way, you know, Fort Saskatchewan Penitentiary in Edmonton is very close to the city. Stony Mountain Penitentiary in Winnipeg is 25 miles out of town. My mom said that when my dad got to Winnipeg, the first question he asked was, where's the penitentiary? Now, I think that, you know, my father never lost his job. We never went hungry. The harassment that's, that's visited upon Christians today isn't as dramatic here as in other parts of the world, but I think it's there. 
And I think if you sniff and snoop around, you can turn it up in a hurry and you can find it. You can, there's a subtle oppression visited upon Christians, I think, in our society. Very much. Very much. Bear in mind. Bear in mind. As the, one of the points that Luther never tired of making, that God is operative in the world through the, through the providential provision of the state. God is operative in the, in the church through the gospel. Luther always insisted that Satan is no less active in both the world and the church. Therefore, says Luther, says, you will find the activity of Satan not only in the world, but you will find the activity of Satan as thoroughly and pervasively in the church. And for this reason, I think that very often the most subtle and the most Tragic persecution that comes upon Christians comes upon them from the church. Despite that, it's the only body our Lord has. Jacob Yach, who used to preach, boy, these are long answers to brief questions. Jacob Yach, who used to uh, teach at Wycliffe College, said to me one day, any time the gospel is preached to the world, the gospel has to be preached to the church at the same time. Sure, sure. By the way, I've had a significant ministry to convicts and ex-convicts in my 42 years. I was ordained in 1970, and I have found that when you meet convicts, people react in one of two ways. There's nothing in the middle. Either your heart goes out to them and you fall in love with them, or you can't stand them. There's almost nothing else. And I often wonder why so many people are put off by convicts. I'm not worried about the people in jail. I'm worried about the people in my congregation who aren't. But I think that, that uh, one reason that people are so put off or by convicts is that they fear them. They fear them. Now, people are in jail for good reason. At the same time, if you knew the profile if you knew the social, psychological, educational, domestic profile of the average penitentiary convict in Canada, your heart would break. It would just break. He was numbered among the transgressors, among whom are we numbered? Among whom do we want to be numbered? persecution of Christians in Canada. Um, it seems to many people to be increasingly less subtle and more overt, uh, given the, first of all, you may want to comment on that, but uh, I'll assume that you agree to it. Uh, given that fact and the power of the gospel working through the suffering of his people, what opportunities do you see for the gospel in Canada? <clears throat> I think that got the opportunity for the gospel in Canada is that opportunity that only God, the Holy Spirit, can create for it. I don't think we have to attempt to find or create opportunities for the gospel. I think all we have to do is attest the gospel in word and deed and trust God to do his own work after that. But I don't deny for a minute that the 
that the uh, hostility or overt hostility to the gospel is increasing. Many people think that secularity, or secularism, I should use that term, secularism is value neutral. You know, because the, because the secularites in our midst are neither Christians nor Hindus, they're somehow religiously or spiritually neutral. That's ridiculous. Secularism is not value neutral for one minute. It has its own high priests and its own documents and its own secret police. And uh, uh, I think that we will see our, ourselves moving towards conflict in Canada on a wider, wider scale. Multiculturalism is doable. If by multiculturalism you mean Greek food out here in the Danforth and Japanese lanterns and Chinese chop suey and the Hungarian dances of Johannes Brahms, multiculturalism is doable. But multiculturalism or pluralism isn't doable if you say that uh, convicts, people, someone convicted of theft should be treated in the criminal justice system but treated with mercy and someone else's hand should be severed at the wrist or that the adulterer should be stoned. That's not doable. Now, we are, I think that our multiculturalism so-called in Canada I, I coin a terrible word. Neologisms are a sign of schizophrenia, but I trust you think I'm sane. But what I call multivaluism. We can have multiculturalism, Greek food and Japanese lanterns, but we can't have inconsistent value systems operating at the same time. My wife taught elementary school for years. And when she was a neophyte teacher, she one day she decided she would tell the children they were going to be off for Easter holidays, so she told them what Easter was about. Wow. This is, my wife's now 68, so how old was she when she started? This is 45 years ago. The principal had, this is 45 years ago, the principal had her, and we don't talk about that stuff in class, you see. But there's no, there's no problem at all with telling the children what Ramadan is about. You can tell the children what Ramadan is about or what Diwali is about, but you can't tell the children what Easter is about. Now, there's a form of oppression and, and right, right there. And I think that uh, public education, I'm a supporter of public education because it got me off Gerard Street, made me a highly successful preacher. <laughs> I support public education. I think Edgerton Ryerson's vision was wonderful high-quality education without a doctrinal means test or a financial means test, but it presupposed the commonality of the indirect illumination of the gospel. Not that everybody had to be a flaming Christian, but it presupposed the indirect illumination of the gospel. But once the indirect illumination of the gospel recedes in our society, there's no public ownership of the public good. There isn't even a public ownership of the educational good. We can no longer agree as to what the educational system is trying to achieve. And therefore, I think that uh, we, are, we are facing a period of fragmentation, social fragmentation, and with it, oppression of Christians. However, do we believe in the triumph of the crucified? Jesus, in terms, in terms of worldly success, in terms of worldly evaluation, Jesus is pure loser. You might as well admit it. 
East Pirabalusa, he was born in a one-horse town. His, uh, his family was embarrassed by him because they thought him deranged, Mark 3. He's abandoned by his disciples at the most critical hour of his life. Then his own father abandons him. Then he calls people in, in his company and he gets people like you and me. He's a loser. Never mind. I love him. <laughs> and he will be vindicated. Many people are troubled by the point I've made tonight about Jesus raised wounded. That If you look for it, the New Testament's full of this. It's full of it. But the church confusing the victory, the triumph of the cross with the triumphalism of the church has, has lost sight of this. So people tell me, well, if Jesus Christ suffers today, according to the New Testament, he does. And he suffers not only in the suffering of the church, his persecuted people, but suffers in the anguish of the world as a whole. Then is our blessed Lord going to suffer eternally? Like, does it never end? No, it will end. But on that day, the day of grace is foreclosed. On that day. Until then, until then, he suffers. The line of, everybody wants to see the line of the tribe of Judah. There's only one problem. The lion never shows up. But what keeps showing up is the lamb hemorrhaging. For this reason, by the way, I have no great grinding objection to a crucifix. The Luther, if you go into Lutheran churches, some Lutheran churches will have the cross unadorned. Some Lutheran churches will have a crucifix. I have no great grinding ob objection to them. Nobody of any theological persuasion who has a crucifix believes for a minute that Christ wasn't raised. Nobody Nobody thinks that. I have no objection to a crucifix. You uh, talked about Christ takes up his cross and we take up our, our own cross. Mm -hmm. Can you explain further what that looks like um, on average? Because it would be different for each person, obviously, but um, just give some examples perhaps. John Wesley was sitting with a man uh, in his, uh, his home one day when there was a downdraft. There was a fire burning in the fireplace, and the downdraft caused the room to fill with smoke and soot. And the man said to Wesley, well, I've had this crummy fireplace for years. He says, I, that's just the cross I have to bear. Wesley said, it's nothing of the sort. That is not a cross. That's just a crummy fireplace. That has nothing to do with the cross. The cross is particularly your discombobulation, suffering, sacrifice, whatever that is, one that is a concomitant of your discipleship. I'm sorry I can't be any more uh, specific than that because it varies with, um, it varies with every person. I often think, you know, of Teresa of Avila. You know, she belonged to the the, uh, what order did you belong to? They weren't Cistercians. The Discalced. Give me the name of the order. Slip in my tongue. Carmelite. She was a Carmelite, yeah. She was imprisoned three times by the Inquisition. Her own people. All she wanted to do was, was cleanse the order. The church was in no hurry to have the order cleansed. 
imprisoned three times by the Inquisition. But you notice two things about uh, Sister Teresa of Avila. One, she always knew what her vocation in Christ was. She couldn't be dissuaded from it. Two, even the church which harassed her, she loved. The church which harassed her, she loved for the sake of something better for the church. And that's what we have to do. You know, um, Reinhold Niebuhr used to say that the church is like Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the storm outside, you couldn't stand the stink inside. And um, <laughs> Karl Barth said the church is, uh, it, well, he says, if Christ hadn't been in the boat, it would have sunk. Of course it would have been it sunk. But I want you to notice that the reason the disciples were in the boat in the middle of the storm, the reason was that they were in the boat at all was that Christ had called them into his company. Once they are called into the company of Christ, the storm comes down upon them, sure. If they had wished, they could have not gotten into the boat but stayed on land. Nobody ever got seasick on land. But they were in the boat with their Lord in the midst of the storm because they had obeyed the call to go with them. I'm waiting for someone to say to me, well, Shepherd, it sounds good, but what price have you paid? What renunciation have you made? What sacrifice have you undertaken? I don't want to go there just yet. <laughs> Consumatum est, is it finished? Uh, I have one question. Oh, I thought, I thought you were coming to pronounce the benediction. No, no, no. no. Oh. Um, I have a question. I was going to ask it at the beginning, but I was worried it was going to be kind of off topic. But since you've talked a lot about suffering and the, uh, the crucified risen one, I thought I'd bring this up. Um, in Colossians 1, verse 24, um, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction Absolutely. for the sake of his body. What does that it's mean? It's a wonderful text. Paul says that for his, the sake of the church, he makes up, he supplies what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Um, by the way, uh, I teach a course in modern Jewish philosophy at Tyndale, and we were probing the work of wonderful Canadian philosopher Emil Fackenheim, who was as adept at theology as he is at philosophy, and he was bringing forward a rabbinic uh, a thesis that, to that effect without using those words. And the students, some students in the class said, well, see, what can you expect from a Jew? He doesn't know any better. He thinks da-da-da-da-da. So I let them go on for a while. Then I said, well, doesn't Paul say exactly the same thing in Colossians 1.24? On the one hand, everybody in this room believes that the death our Lord's sacrifice was complete, perfect, whole. It needs no supplementation whatsoever. His sufferings are deficient in nothing, right? If they are deficient, if Christ's sufferings are deficient, then you and I are cast upon our own resources to save ourselves. If his sufferings are deficient in nothing, then his atonement is sufficient for you and me. Then what does Paul mean when he says, I make up what is lacking? in the suffering, this. The gospel has to be embodied, carried forth in the world. 
And as the body gospel is embodied in the world, there is a suffering visited upon the uh, upon Christ's people, which is theirs. Theirs. It's not really that his sufferings are deficient in any way. It's rather that he bears his own cross, but we have to bear ours, and that is simply inescapable. And unless we are willing to bear ours, his cross never does, never never brings people to faith or forms disciples in the world. What he has done, only he could do. But what you and I must do, we mustn't fail to do, or else what he has done benefits nobody. What Christ has done for us benefits us only as what he's done for us is done in us. But if, if what he's done for us is, comes to be done in us, it has also to be done in others. Or else what he's done for them doesn't profit them. That's the meaning of the text, I think. It's a wonderful text to preach on. It startles people. As I said earlier, refreshments downstairs. Let's thank our speaker. Next week uh, will be our final week. Kirk Wellman will be here. So please do come out for that. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.